you'd open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 31. In the evenings, of course, we've been going through the Old Testament, verse by verse. This is the last chapter of 1 Samuel. You may remember that 1 and 2 Samuel were actually one, are one book in the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's been split in two. I don't think it's inappropriate where it has been split because 2 Samuel is all about the life and reign of David. And we'll see uh, in 1 Samuel 31 that this seems very appropriate, an appropriate place for it to break for various reasons that I hope to, to bring to your attention this evening. But I do want to, it's been a, a few weeks since we've talked about 1 Samuel, I want to bring you quickly up to speed on what is happening in 1 Samuel 31. Since David has shown up on the scene in 1 Samuel, we've seen the writer giving a contrast between David and Saul. The man after God's own heart, David, this doesn't mean he's perfect. This doesn't mean he has pro doesn't have problems. He has plenty of problems and issues in his life. But God has changed his heart. So the contrast of David and the man who desired really his own glory, and that's Saul. So Saul and the army of Israel are facing a great battle against the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 28, we're introduced to this battle. Uh, Saul's response, if you remember, to this distressing situation was to seek out witchcraft. He sought a woman who could bring back people from the dead, whatever that was. Was it really Samuel? Was it a ghost acting? We don't know what it was. Seems to, to be that it was Samuel. But God allowed Samuel to come back and talk to Saul because he gave Saul God's word. And Saul was told in 1 Samuel 28 by Samuel that he would die the next day in battle. What a message. Well, then 1 Samuel 29 and 30, the following chapters, actually zip backwards in time. They zip back to a few days before the Philistines depart for the battle, where David is living in a Philistine town under the protection of a Philistine king, because Saul's been trying to kill him. So we see 1 Samuel 29. Again, it's a rewind from 1 Samuel 28. Maybe two weeks before 1 Samuel 28, we see David, who is rejected by the Philistines before the battle. David goes out. He's kind of forced to go out with the Philistines, and they reject him. God spares him from having to go out, and who knows what would have happened if he went out with the Philistines to fight his own people. And then in 1 Samuel 30, we see David returning to his hometown, well, to his new hometown, Ziklag, and he finds all the families were kidnapped, remember that? And they pursue the Amalekites, and they get everyone back. In the key verse in 1 Samuel 30, in the midst of this devastation in, Samuel, or in David's life, was that he strengthened himself in the Lord. And that's really a verse just to hang on your wall, to think about this every day. We strengthen ourselves in the Lord, no matter what happens in our lives. So 1 Samuel 28 was Saul, the day before the battle. 1 Samuel 29 and 30, it's rewinding a couple weeks. And then now back to 1 Samuel 31, it's the day of the battle. It's the day of the battle. So I'll be reading 
all of 1 Samuel 31. Please remain seated, but hear God's holy word, this inspired word of God. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lifted them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let us pray for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as we study these scriptures. Almighty God, we again come to you as people who know that spiritual truth is spiritually discerned, and we pray that you would open our eyes to hear and understand, to be rebuked and trained and encouraged by your word, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. What a devastating day for the city of, for the, the country of Israel, for the people of Israel. This was a battle that happened deep in the heart of Israel. It would be like the Russians not fighting on the coasts, but coming to Kansas for a battle and winning, and then moving into Kansas. It's right in the middle of Israel. And yet there's hope, even in the midst of this great heartache. Let's go through the scriptures and see what God would have us learn. Verse 1 says, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. This now is basically saying, we're picking up where we left off in chapter 28. We're back to the day of the battle. The flashbacks to David's life are over. This now is like we're back on timeline. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. 
So this is like the summary sentence, and all the rest of it is the details that fill in. It's like the, in military writing, it's the bluff. It's the bottom line up front. Generals like to have the bottom line, like what are you presenting? Give me the bottom line. I don't have time to read your 20-page report. Just tell me right now. That's kind of what this Hebrew writer is doing. And it's a Hebrew form of narrative to just tell the bottom line right up front. What happened? Israel got beat. They were strewn all over Mount Gilboa, dead. And Saul and his sons were dead. What can we learn from this situation? I think the first thing we see is that God's word is true. This wasn't random. This was judgment on Saul for disobedience and the people. And it came in a devastating way. Verse 2 says, The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Not only was Saul killed, but his sons were killed as well. Jonathan, we know, was a mighty warrior. He was probably one of the generals commanding one of the armies. A mighty man in the battlefield, just in his own right. His brothers, we would imagine, were probably the same. They're all killed. They're all dead. The battle is lost. And in verse 3 through 6, we quickly see the battle of pressing hard against Saul. And the archers found him. Do you realize what that means? He's standing, directing the battle, and people are shooting arrows, and they begin hitting him. He's been shot. And he sees that he's losing the battle, and he tells his armor-bearer, this is the man who would allow him to be more mobile by carrying his shield and his spear and his sword and all of the things. He's right with him. It's a, it's a, it's a special honor to be the armor-bearer of the king. This isn't just some little servant boy who's following him around. This is probably another mighty warrior who's with Saul. They're both terrified. His armor bearer would not thrust him through. So Saul fell on his own sword and the armor bearer did the same thing. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer, all of his men on the same day killed together. So I want you to do something with me. Look through these first six or seven verses. And look at the verbs that are used. And I want you to see that many of these same verbs are used when you read the passion of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Just some that stuck out to me. Fled, fell, overtook, struck down, pressed hard, wounded, Pierced through, mistreated, feared, died, abandoned, fled, stripped, nailed, cut off, burned, buried. Interesting, isn't that? There seem to be some themes of hopelessness and darkness that we are probably meant to experience to experience when we read the passion of Jesus, his death. And then at the end of the, the chapter, of course, we see hope. We see hope bursting through what happens in the first chapter of 2 Samuel. David, 
David, the type of Christ, he bursts onto the scene. So out of this darkness bursts a great light in the royal kingdom of David. In the darkness of the crucifixion, we also see a great light bursting onto the scene. So why? Why? Let's just step back from maybe the typology of this chapter. And think about exactly why this is such a dark chapter with so many details of defeat and such ominous language. As I've said before, the writer of for Samuel, everyone agrees who studied this book, he's a master at writing. He's a master storyteller. Yes, it's divine in its output. Yes, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but He's a good writer. And he uses words, so many successive, negative, death words in this chapter, one after another, with no hope at all. It's the only chapter in 1 Samuel that's like this, until the very end. It's word after word after word in the Hebrew language of death. Well, why? This is the ultimate judgment on Saul and his rebellion. He rebelled against God. His life began very promisingly. God chose him to lead his people, and yet he was rejected. We're reading the rejection of Saul and all those who would follow him. God chose him to lead his people. If you remember, he's a head taller than everyone else. He's the Israelite giant, if you will. Samuel invested much time in his training and gave him solid counsel, taught him the word of God. And yet in the end, he was selfish and disobedient and prideful and stubborn and headstrong and ultimately miserable, trying to kill David. In short, what started as a promising life ended tragically, killed by his enemies, killed by his own sword and then decapitated and stripped by his enemies. His body hung on the wall of the nearest town to not be buried for a Jew was the worst of worst Insults, the worst shame you could imagine. Not only was he not buried, he was hung on a wall naked for everyone to see. A trophy of battle killed by his, his worst enemies. So this seems like a horrible thing, and certainly it is. Yet this is the judgment of God for a man who refused to repent, who pursued his own selfishness, in his own way, this is divine judgment and God's anger against Saul's rebellion, and certainly part of God's divine purpose, God's providence. We see that this, this fulfillment of these, these prophecies and these words of 1 Samuel 27, sorry, 1527, when Saul had disobeyed God and Samuel came and confronted him. And Saul turned to go away, and Saul see, Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And then when Samuel talked to him from the dead in 1 Samuel 28, Samuel said, The Lord has done to you all that he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of 
Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel in the hand of the Philistines. What a dreadful judgment. And yet what we can glean from this that's positive is that God's word is true. There will be right and justice that will come into the world for everyone someday. Either in this world or in the coming of Christ. Do you remember that Jesus was explaining to his disciples after his resurrection? He said, every word of the scriptures about me is true. And he explained to them that it was all fulfilled. Well, every word about Saul is true as well. And it was all fulfilled. God is patient with the rebellious. He's patient with the, with the wicked. But he's eventually going to bring judgment. And this happened to Saul. On the other side of the issue, we see that God is faithful to all of his promises. And that's for us. He's faithful, faithful to every single promise. Everyone. Just as his judgment is always true and his justice is always right, his promises are always true. And he will accomplish the good he's determined for all of his own people. Do you remember Paul said, all things work together for what? Good to those who love God. And he's called according to his own purpose. <coughs> David trusted God to do good for him. And that's the other side of Saul is that David trusted God. And God preserved him. Even in the midst of serious situations, David trusted God. He sought after God. Now the scriptures often bring me to places that I normally would not talk about, and I am going to take a moment just quickly to talk about suicide, since we see suicide right in our face. Saul and his armor bearer. Some argue that it's a heroic way for Saul to die. He didn't want to be touched by these uncircumcised Philistines. So this is a heroic thing for him to kill himself. Some of us have been touched by suicide very closely. Some of us have friends or family who have committed suicide. So I want to be gentle, but I also want to clearly teach the truth of Scripture. What Saul did was murder. Suicide is murder. To kill yourself is murder. We do want to provide comfort to the families of those who have committed suicide. It's a grievous thing. And there might be mental illness and other things involved. Yes, I understand. It's difficult. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that even in the midst of all this, suicide is murder. And we don't do it. Friends, we do not do that. If you've ever been tempted in that way, you need to know it's murder. Do not do that. And it's a selfish kind of murder, isn't it? It's selfish in two ways. You leave your loved ones to suffer in ways that they should not have to suffer. Through the grief and guilt and regret that really should be your own. But you also take into your hands what should be in God's hands, the moment of your death. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Christians commit suicide grievously. But it is a sin nonetheless. To sin, we should just take a moment to consider that this is grievous. Some people, so first of all, if you know someone who is talking about suicide, you probably all know this. Don't leave them alone for a moment. Make sure someone is with them and get them help. Don't give them any 
any chance to follow through because often the despair will overtake them in a moment. Stay with them. Don't leave them alone. There was an F-106 pilot. My dad flew the F-106, so I know the story. Um, he was a single-seat fighter pilot. He crashed in Canada in the woods, in the middle of nowhere. And he waited an hour on his jet. He smoked a cigarette. He pulled out his gun and killed himself. He thought, no one's ever going to find me. He was less than a mile from a highway. This just illustrates the, the, the despair that can come upon a person who feels this way. Saul's body, they cut off his head, they strip him of all his armor, they hang their bodies, tied or nailed to the walls of Beth Shon. Satan hates God's people. By the way, what you've heard in the media about the pastor of the church in Nashville, that he had been counseling this person and if he had been more loving and kind, this person wouldn't have been so angry and come and killed him, or tried to kill him, and killed all these Christians. That's all hogwash. He never knew this person. Of course, it has to be the narrative for it not to be about killing Christians, but this person went to the PCA school to kill Christian people. Why? Because Satan hates us. That's why. It's that simple. He hates us. And sometimes God allows this to happen, this horrible thing to happen, for a good reason that we cannot see. It's hard. It's difficult to understand. That's nothing new. One of the first things that happened in the Bible is what? Cain killed Abel. There it started. Satan has been killing God's people ever since. John says, Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. 1 John 3 says, don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. We know that Satan is called the murderer, so we don't need to be afraid. We serve the king of kings, even in the most difficult of situations. I cannot imagine the grief of the folks in Nashville, but I know their comfort. Their comfort is Christ. This chapter actually, actually concludes with hope, and before we partake of the Lord's Supper, look at the hope that we have. In verses 11 through 13, the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done, and the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body off of the wall. They basically burned the bodies so that they would not be mutilated any further and they were more easily buried in a secret place, it seems. This is a guerrilla band of men from Jabesh Gilead in what is now enemy territory and they go to the wall all night, they pull the bodies down and they give them a burial. So why is this important? Any Jewish reader reading this would go, Jabesh Gilead, wow. Wow. Well, why would they say that? Jabesh Gilead was this little clan that was wiped out by Israel. You know, Israel did not get rid of all of the idol-worshipping, uh, child-sacrificing, evil inhabitants of Canaan. But when it came to the 
the clan of Jabesh Gilead, they killed the man, woman, and child. You see this in Judges 21. Because they didn't appear in a, in a, at a called assembly just to, to show the, the absolute decadence of Israel before the kings. Judges 21 said, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones as well. Every man and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. They used the same language that the Lord gave to them going into Canaan. And yet they left 400 virgins of the clan alive. And these virgins were eventually married to Benjamites, who were also almost completely wiped out. So you have the clan almost wiped out, with the tribe almost wiped out, and these people are still alive. And this beleaguered little community, oh, by the way, Saul had come to rescue the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead as one of his first victories when he became king, when the Ammonites threatened them. Remember, threatened to cut off all their thumbs or poke out all their eyes. Saul came and rescued them, and they remembered. So this beleaguered little community, forgotten by all the tribes of Israel, this nothing community, nobody thought they would ever do anything or even survive, probably. They rose up in this last chapter to fame by an act of courage. That really is the only heroic thing we see in this chapter. They honored the bodies of Saul and his sons, and they are honored in the Word of God at this time as well. So what's happening in the narrative? We're seeing just a glimmer of hope and what is the darkness of this night. After the fall, there came redemption. After hopelessness comes victory and preservation in God's paradigm of history. This is always true. And it points to the hopelessness felt in Israel during the Roman occupation. 1,500 years later, outnumbered, outmatched, outgunned, the Israelites had no hope to defeat the Romans. And God sent his son to rescue the situation. He's the author of hope and the creator of what is possible. And it's because of that that we celebrate, because